0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello, I'm James Forsyth and I'm joined by Katie Balls here in Parliament. We've just heard Liz Truss's departure speech from Downing Street. Here's what she had to say. From my time as Prime Minister, I am more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges that we face. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare, it's because we do not dare that they are difficult. We simply cannot afford to be a low growth country where the government takes up an increasing
1: share of our national wealth. So I think the first thing that struck me about that speech was the fact that it wasn't an apologetic speech. Instead, uh, Liz Truss um, ultimately came out and I think when Theresa May you know, had to step down, and obviously you have different types of speeches, so you have your immediate resignation speech, the one when you leave... But it felt as though she, you know, she was choking up a bit. And I think Liz Trust held it together very well. But also, in terms of what she was trying to do with that speech, it didn't feel as though it was a speech where she wanted to discuss regrets or even offer an apology in the way that she had offered an apology earlier on when she was still Prime Minister or, you know, in the interview about the way things had been handled. But instead, she wanted to talk more about the positives of her very short time as Prime Minister and also give a hint to what she'll be doing next and the quote we just heard I think relates to when it comes to her low tax growth agenda it was quite clear that she was still saying this is the right path and there was no but with hindsight I think we could have done it differently it was almost as like she thought she'd got that bit out of the way and and therefore I think it will jar with some people that after you have, you know, the shortest serving prime minister, the situation that Richard is inheriting, there's nothing linking to that. I think in terms of the positives of that speech, I think what we learned is the fact that Liz Truss plans to stay on as a backbench MP. Um, that means that so we are going to have actually, if you think about, uh, you know, the period, uh, David Cameron leaving, Theresa May was seen as almost uh, the exception to the rule for someone who stuck around. And actually with Theresa May, Boris Johnson... And this trust is is quite interesting. What the House of Commons is, is is now representing.
0: Yeah, I look. I think former prime minister staying on is a good thing. Adds to the experience and knowledge of a house. I think one of the things about, I think about about the trust feature is worth reflecting on. Liz Truss is right that you need to get economic growth going. That unless you can boost the growth rate of the economy, the fiscal choices facing this country are going to become ever more unappealing. I think mean, the question is about the order in which you did it. And I think in some ways, I think what divided the Tory party was not a kind of question of whether taxes should be lower, but whether you could just cut taxes before you had got spending under control and done it in that order. I think mean, that's I think gives attention. I also think when she talks about democracies delivering for her people, one of the things I think that, again, Liz ross think has been, been right about is... But, you know, the need to reduce dependence on authoritarian regimes. And something that she talked about when she was trade secretary, something she talked about as foreign secretary, something she talked about as prime minister. I think that that is that is correct. I think that we need democratic nations need to do to think more about how they can reduce this dependence, because you've seen in this in the, in the way in which Vladimir Putin has tried to weaponize energy in the Ukraine conflict. The, the danger that countries have got themselves into by relying on an autocratic regime that is that, that puts geopolitics above economics for things as essential as gas and oil.
1: James, Watching that speech, I wondered too, as much as Liz Truss was saying, I wish Rishi Sunak every success for the good of our country, and suggesting that she will be supportive from the backbenchers, she did seem to lay down a challenge. Uh, she said, and we must continue to strengthen our nation's defences. Now, this struck me as quite interesting, given Liz Truss, obviously during the leadership campaign, made lots of pledges, many of them Failed to exist during her own time when she had to U-turn, but one was the three percent defence spending. Uh, Rishi Sunak did not make that pledge during the leadership. It was also in doubt to a degree whether Liz Truss was going to be able to stick with it had she stayed on as prime minister. Uh, Though I did think it was telling that uh, supporters of Liz Truss uh, number ten aides when Jeremy Hunt was appointed was appointed as chancellor pointed to the fact that he was supportive of the target. Now. I think once he'd seen the state of the finances, he might have had different ideas. But do you think that was her ultimately putting the pressure on uh, lightly and perhaps where she's going to go next in terms of defence spending?
0: I think it is. I think I think that her decision to mention it in her leavings speech was a clear sign that she considers this to be a very important question. And one presumes that if she's going to be a, a backbench MP, you know, that, you know, that there will be issues that she speaks about. And considering how long she has been talking about this point about increasing defence spending, even when she was in Boris Johnson's cabinet and before Boris Johnson had got to the kind of figures that Liz Truss was talking about, I, I think it would be surprising if she wasn't part of that caucus of Tory MPs who are pushing for defence spending to increase more quickly.
1: Do you think... James, that Liz Truss's speech could have been more reflective?
0: I think it's a speech given in unique circumstances in, in that because her premiership has not lasted that long. And I think in some ways she had said that things had not worked out in the speech announcing that she was resigning as leader of the Tory party. And I think, I think it's not unreasonable for her to set out what she thinks philosophically as she departs i also think that you know the, the, these farewell speeches are not easy for any politician because you you are you are leaving an office which you have worked towards which you've put your heart and soul into getting and and i thought you know i thought with all of those pressures i actually thought that you know the, the, the speech was remarkably composed and clear
1: when it comes to Liz Truss's legacy, James, just a final thing on that speech, she she named a few things, which she, I think in her short time in Downing Street is clearly pointing to as, as things that her government did that may not have happened otherwise. So she said taking back our energy independence was something she had helped towards, helping millions of households with their energy bills. And then she said, we reversed the national insurance increase. Now, do you think that's going to survive? Because we're about to see a situation where Rishi Sunak is um, shortly going to be appointed Prime Minister. And we know during the leadership campaign, uh, that was a clear dividing line between the two. Uh, we know the public finance is in a very difficult position, but also the MPs were very anti the national insurance hike in the first place. So I wondered, do you, th- do you think her legacy in that sense is going to stay intact?
0: I mean that probably all depends on whether you feel that you need to to raise more taxes or not if you need to raise more taxes, I think that you know, the, the whole argument that that, that Rishi Sunak made at the time was this was the least bad tax to raise i 've always thought this actually that that, that if you, if you do think back to the summer not not to kind of not, not, not to live in the past, but I always thought the kind of in some ways one of the things that, that, that was the least convincing part of the as trust pitch was when she said. That extra thirteen billion pounds will go to health and social care, but I won't. But I won't increase national insurance to pay for it. I'll pay for it out of general taxation and inverted commas. And I mean, you know, you, that that has to. At some point, right, you have to find a way of paying for these things. I think there is a there is a case to be made that that. Is the least bad way of raising extra cash for the NHS in the current circumstances, and also if you want to keep to a social care policy, which is going to become steadily more expensive over time, you do need a funding stream for it.
1: There is interesting because if you did have a situation just politically where MPs are just all voted to get rid of it, only to then bring it back, and then uh, I, it could, it could just add to. I uh, think
0: I think there is an interesting procedural question about whether it has actually been scrapped yet or not.
1: I think it also does point to though if we're looking ahead to Rishi Sunak's you know Mm. intro about how if you look at the papers today I think Rishi Sunak has had a a very positive reception broadly from from largely right-leaning papers but I think given how some of these papers covered the summer leadership contest I I think he I think his team will be relieved at how his, his first you know day since winning has gone but It feels as though his honeymoon, perhaps it will be longer than Liz Truss's, purely in the sense that Liz Truss has ended in such a dramatic way with that budget, in a self-forced way. But it feels as though in terms of there has been a big effort towards party unity. But I wonder if something such as uh, you know, if you were to ditch the national insurance hike, if that would start to inflame some of the, some in the party again. Um, so it's this very fragile balancing act. James, we may be getting a cabinet reshuffle today. The rumour is, uh, late afternoon, of course, if we do, we'll be bringing all the information on another podcast. What do you think we should look out for here? It feels as though uh, the Rishi Sunak camp are very keen to avoid some of the mistakes in terms of awarding loyalty first at this trust made.
0: I think the question is, is it a broad-based cabinet? You know, but there is an old saying in British politics that parties, political parties create internal coalitions to avoid the need to create external ones. Does this, does this look to Tory MPs, to Tory MPs of all factions look at this and say, look, this is a cabinet that I can get behind because I see competent people and I don't see this as, you know, being a cabinet is exclusively rewarding people who supported Rishi Sunak in the summer or in this contest... Or I don't see people who exclusively come from one wing or the other of the party. I was having an interesting conversation with a member of Liz Truss's cabinet at the weekend. And they were saying that, you know, perhaps the mistake Liz Truss made in constructing her cabinet was, you know, she thought, oh, I've got, you know, Rob Buckland uh, and Tom Tugendhat from the One Nation wing of the party. I've got, you know, this person from, the, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg from the ERG wing of the party. And not realising that the, the kind of thread that lined them linked them all up, was that they had backed her in the leadership contest. And so people didn't look at the cabinet and think, oh, that represents all the different factions. They just looked at the cabinet and saw everyone there having backed this trust. I think one of the other fundamental challenges for anyone doing a reshuffle in the current circumstances is that because of the extraordinary events of this year so far, there are multiple departments where there have been three or four secretaries of state. And the problem with that is that that creates a whole bunch of people who think... that that even if they're not at the moment, that they they are the person in possession, and so they would expect to be returned to to that job. I think that is one of the things that is going to make this difficult. I am sceptical of the idea that there will be a honeymoon. I think that, weirdly enough, it's one of these things where you might be able to earn a future honeymoon, if you see what I mean, by creating a bit more calm and stability. But I think the the number of challenges that are coming straight down the track mean that that it's going to be a mini-moon rather than a honeymoon.
1: Yeah, maybe it's it's a one-day honeymoon. The positive press today, the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph... Maybe you know, maybe it's a two-day honeymoon. With all these quite unlikely MPs, in terms of uh, some of Boris Johnson's backers saying they were getting behind him, and perhaps by eight p.m. this evening after the reshuffle, the honeymoon yeah, will be one over. More question,
0: which is, does the Tory party look at the polls at the moment, with them thirty odd points behind, and say this is an existential moment for us? Got to pull back from the brink. All got to rally around. Or do they look at that and think, well, we're going to lose the next election anyway, so we might as well have all the arguments we want to have before then?
1: And with that, thank you, James, and thank you for listening.